Chapter 5 of California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeaton Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Some Desert Indian Lore. In this chapter, I pass on to the reader some items of information that I have gathered, in some instances directly, in others at second hand, of the beliefs and practices of the desert Indians especially with regard to the uses of certain plants. The topic is a large one, and cannot here be more than touched upon. Even so, much of what follows cannot be taken as trustworthy. Everyone who has attempted to delve into affairs ethnological, even if he be fitted for the task by study and training, knows the hopelessness of efforts to clear up the doubts and contradictions that arise at every step. Hence, these scraps of supposed fact or belief are offered more for the passing interest or amusement of the reader than as reliable fragments of knowledge. The only items not subject to this qualification are those referring to the medical qualities of plants, insofar as they may have been proved and accepted by authorities. Of Takwitz or Takush, the bad spirit of the Cahuyas, an Indian friend tells me that his visible manifestation is as a meteor, not, however, any ordinary shooting star, but such as to carry a train of sparks. If an explosion is heard, the sound of the meteor striking, it is said that Taquas has caught a victim. Otherwise, he is supposed to have failed in his attempt. The Taquitz meteor seen in daytime is called Tamyasuet, it also tries to catch the spirits of men. There is a certain rock on Palomar Mountain, many miles to the south of San Jacinto Mountain, where Takwitz has his home, to which this methodical demon is said to carry his prey, there to pound the flesh and prepare it for his maw. My criticism that spirits have no flesh was thought irrelevant. I tell you what we say, was the take-it-or-leave-it reply. The Diagueno Indians, that is, those formerly tributary to the mission of San Diego, recognize the same evil spirit, having his haunt on the same mountain at a spot they call Awikayai, but they name him Chauk. The curious rumblings sometimes heard to proceed from this mountain, and which I have noticed myself, are, of course, attributed to Takwitz's operations. A Diagueno Indian with whom I camped, pointing one night to the Pleiades, said, we call them Siete Carrias, Seven Buzzards. He went on to explain that when the first people, that is, the original inhabitants of the earth, were seeking to escape from death, they were taken up into the sky and became stars. There were seven sisters, with one of whom, Coyote, who figures largely in Western Indian mythology, was in love. The sisters climbed up by a rope, and the lovelorn Coyote, catching the end of the rope, was drawn up after them. But the sisters, once safe, cut the rope behind them, and he fell, but not back to earth, for, see, said Antonio, pointing to Aldebaran, there he go. All the time he tried to catch that girl, but he never catch her yet. The creosote bush, Lorea glandulosa, Araqualsana, produces scantily a red, scale-like gum which is considered very valuable. It is used for repairing oyas, attaching arrowheads to shafts, and also as a medicine for the throat. 
Of this gum, the barrel was made in which the semi-divine hero of the Papagos, a southern desert tribe, was saved from death in the great flood. The creosote bush itself is used medicinally, a strong decoction of the twigs and leaves taken internally being thought excellent for maladies of the throat and chest and of the stomach. The virtues and vices of the datura, a common rank plant very similar to the well-known jimson weed, with large trumpet-shaped, white or lilac-tinted, sickly sweet flowers which open at night, are well known to the Indian. They call the plant tuluache and put its narcotic properties to use in connection with certain of their social and religious ceremonies. It is believed to confer clairvoyance, so that by its use one may recover lost articles, though it is capable of more difficult feats. For instance, it was reported to me of a certain blind Indian of my acquaintance, who was formerly a noted gambler, that he had lost his sight through too frequent use of toluache, by means of which he used to read the faces of his opponent's cards. The pounded leaves, applied hot as a poultice, are said to be effective for relieving pain, however acute, but you must not eat hard food, that is, heavy or indigestible, soon before, or it will kill you, said Lugardio. As a remedy for saddle galls, it is reputed to be sovereign, as is also a powder of the mistletoe of the desert juniper, or of the root of the common wild gourd, or calabazia, mixed with sugar. The raven, or carrion crow, eminent for sagacity since Noah's day, and made half supernatural by Poe, is a bird of omen to the Indians also. A certain part of the Santa Rosa Mountains, Wahatnauha, is known in Spanish as Casa de Cuerva, or Raven's House, or in Indian, Alwatemhemki, House of Many Ravens, and is held in superstitious regard. Rock crystals are believed to be missiles which the raven has cast at men with evil intent. I have noticed that any piece of glittering rock is apt to be considered bad medicine, and such are always part of the stock and trade of the pole or medicine man, in Spanish, a chichero. It is natural that the two great contiguous mountains, San Gorgonio and San Jacinto, should be thought to be brothers. Their names are Quaid a Kaich and Aya Kaich, respectively, the former being looked upon as the elder. It is a pretty idea that is embodied in the use of the Spanish word ojo, meaning eye, for a pool or spring of water, with ojito for diminutive. The Cahuillas have the same poetic thought in their word palhepush for a pool. In the word or phrase applied to their ancient wells, now non-existent, to which one descended by steps cut in the earth, we have an example of natural language building. The Cahuilla word for water jar, Spanish oya, is kawomau, and that for earth or ground, temau. Hence the well was tema kawomau, or earth oya, neatly enough. Making fire by friction of dry sticks is an art not often practiced in these days, but two Palm Springs Indians with whom I once camped were experts at the game. Two pieces of dry palm fruit stem were the tools, one an inch or so broad, lengthy material, the other less than half as thick, about a foot long, and perfectly straight. A few dead leaves were placed in a little heap. 
The larger stick was laid beside them and held in place by one of the men, a hollow having first been made in the surface of the wood, with a little groove leading from it to the leaves. Then the smaller stick, trimmed to a blunt point, was put to the hollow and rapidly revolved by rolling between the open hands of the other Indian. His hands moved down as he rolled, returning again and again to the top. The friction sent a fine stream of wood powder down the groove upon the leaves. In less than two minutes, smoke showed at the point of friction, then sparks began to fall on the tinder, and finally a flame was started by blowing. Less than three minutes sufficed for the operation. It was hard work while it lasted, for the fire was endangered by the perspiration caused in kindling it. An Indian woman, one whose industry, dignity, and general high character I admire, when on her first trip inside, was taken by friends of hers and mine to see the ocean. The place chosen was a seaside resort near Los Angeles, one that aspires, I believe, to the proud title of the Coney Island of California. On coming in view of the sea, she was deeply excited, though self-possessed. The car was stopped, so that she might gaze her fill. Her childlike wonder and murmured words of awe were a study in natural emotion. Approaching the water's edge, she was a little reluctant at the boom and wash of the surf. Then she stood quiet and intent, as if striving to grasp the hitherto unimaginable fact of such an infinity of water. Her companions made no unwise attempt to overwhelm her with statements of the real vastness of the ocean. When at length they turned to leave the beach, she still stood enthralled, then knelt by the margin and tasted the water, beckoning to it and speaking to herself or to it in the Indian tongue. It was hard for her to turn away. Again and again she stopped to gaze, and when they came among the sideshows and switchbacks, she had no eyes for these irrelevancies, but at every opportunity she turned afresh to the great simple marvel of the sea. It was to that, not the fat ladies or pink-eyed cannibals, that the uncultured Indian nature reacted. The leaves of the quail bush, Atriplex lentiformis, whose hemispherical gray hummocks are almost the sole feature of the monotonous silt flats, are used for soap and the seeds are boiled for food. The twigs and leaves of the sueda, which inhabits the same localities, besides being boiled and eaten, yield a black stain that is used for dyeing the material for baskets. A more sophisticated use for the plant is that of hair dye, for which purpose it is mixed with wet clay and plastered on the head, where it is left until dry. The common Isocoma acridinia, Malchowal, is a standard remedy for cold and sore throat, and is used by pouring boiling water on the bruised leaves and inhaling the steam. The leaves, after being so used, may be applied as a poultice on the forehead. It may be noted that the genus Isocoma is closely akin to another, namely Solidago, whose etymology tells the curative properties of the genus. An odd-looking, not uncommon plant, in appearance like a mass of stiff green straws, is Ephedra californica, or desert tea. A decoction of the twigs is of well-recognized benefit in stomach and kidney complaints. Indians, Mexicans, and whites alike are firm believers in its efficacy. 
it is occasionally found in drug stores for tobacco the desert indians had nicotania attenuata it is a true member of the tobacco family though prospectors jealous for the honor of navy plug or blackjack name it coyote tobacco in contempt it was used both for smoking and chewing the dried juice of a milkweed and the gum of one species of oak and of the incense bush in celia farinosa supplied the primitive chewing gum thus it may be proudly claimed that the great american habit is truly national even aboriginal it was thought comilfo to chew flowers of the poppy as Jolcia, with one's gum a touch of sentiment not more misplaced than some of the world of fashion can show tobacco pipes were made of clay but were usually stemless which suggests that the smoker took his whiff lying down perhaps an excuse for enhancing the luxury bows were made of the screwbine mesquite prosopis pubescens or of willow and light hunting arrows of arrowweed plucea sericea or of carrizo phragmites communis with points of mesquite hardened by fire the carrizo also supplied a fiber for bowstrings war arrows of course were more formidable armed with barbed points of bone or obsidian that were of excellent craftsmanship i have seen such arrow points several inches long and as finely wrought as a piece of jewelry for clubs used in hunting rabbits or birds the wood of the mountain chamiso adenostoma sparsifolia was preferred the large storage baskets for holding the family stock of acorns pinion nuts and so forth are usually made of willowithies, sometimes of a species of arrowweed, often in ingenious shapes. They are called mayonute M. The syllable M is a mark of the plural. The cacti, from tiny mammillaria to giant saguaro, almost all yield food to the Indian, and many of them serve other purposes as well water in quantity sufficient to sustain life may be taken from the great barrel cactus echinocactus cylindraceus and the saguaro cereus giganticus the former hollowed out has been known to be used as a cooking vessel by means of dropping heated stones into the food which has been placed in it the fruit of another kind serves as a hairbrush my fire-making friends brought a new vegetable to my notice in the shape of the flower buds of the barrel cactus Kopashem, they call them. They grow in a circle at the top of the plant, and we had no difficulty in gathering enough for a meal. When boiled, they taste midway between Brussels sprouts and chestnuts, a very satisfactory dish. In another chapter, I spoke of the agave. All its relatives, the yuccas, are plants of many uses to the Indians. One still finds old men and women wearing sandals of yucca fiber, and excellent saddle blankets are made from it. The root of one species, Yucca mojavensis, makes very fair soap, and its seeds are roasted for food. Of another species, Yucca whippoli, the well-known Spanish bayonet, or quijote, both fruit and flowers are eaten. So also are the scarlet blossoms of the ocotillo and the yellow flowers of the agave, the latter probably for the sake of their honey, which is very plentiful but somewhat bitter. The ocotillo, by the by, when not in sap, makes a capital torch, burning with a white, steady light, as if there were some waxy ingredient. 
For food purposes, the two kinds of mesquite and the chia sages, Salvia columbariae and Salvia carduaceae, were the great standby of the desert Indians, together with acorns and pinion nuts from the surrounding mountains. Comparatively little use is made nowadays of these wild resources, but one may still chance to see some old housewifely crone seated on the ground and embracing with outstretched legs the wooden mortar in which she pounds out the family flower, or creeping about among the brush, beating with bat of palm fiber the chia seeds into her bowl basket, a basket that she wove, perhaps, threescore years ago, while her Hiawatha was stalking antelope or wild sheep, and into which she may have woven more of legend and romance than wise men of the Smithsonian would easily unravel. The hunter's instinct is strong in the men still. The other day I met old Ptolomeo, patriarch of his rancheria, ambling homewards on his wall-eyed pony with rifle and a half-dozen jackrabbits at his pommel. Ptolomeo is old, very old, but the jack that gives the slip to the old capitan must be endowed with more than the supernatural speed of most jacks, and Lugardio, just home from prosaic prune-picking in the mountain orchards, finding that my plans did not admit of an autumn hunting trip, remarked with a sigh, Then I guess I don't get a buck this year again. Two years now I don't get me a deer. Sta muy malo. The nourishing properties of chia seed should be better known. It is said that a handful or two of them, roasted and ground, will sustain a man through a day of hard exertion such as continuous running. Mixed with flour, it becomes the famous pinole of the Mexicans, the staff of life of the common people. It is believed to have stomachic as well as nutritive value. The mesquite bean is a good second. Analysis of the meal has shown it to contain over 50% of food elements, largely sugar. The beans of the Palo Verde, and even of the catclaw, though not so good, were formerly pressed into service. The curious Martinia, with its great curved seed vessels and claws like spring steel, was not overlooked. A use was found for it in basket-making, and it also served for riveting broken pottery. Holes were bored in the pieces to be joined, and the tough hooks inserted in them gripped the parts together. The seeds were chewed by Indian boys who relished their sweet taste. Many uses were found for the palm. Its fibers were woven into baskets, though these were not of the finest grade, and brushes were also made from them. The broad fronds were excellent as thatch for houses, and strips from them made material for plating where close texture was not needed. The leaf stems were handy flails for threshing seeds, and the fruit, which is small and hard but with sweet, date-like flavor, when ground, entered into the composition of the all-embracing atole. The sweet tooth is well developed among our desert Indians, and nature has provided for it by furnishing many of the cacti with fruits that are sweet and helpful. The flat-lobed opuntias yield a prickly pear, or tuna, sometimes called Indian fig, the little mammillaria bears a small, red, pleasant-tasting fruit. Even the hateful choya has a fruit that is said to be agreeable, though I refuse to believe it. The saguaro is held in the highest regard by the tribes that inhabit its range, for the lusciousness of its fruit and for many other uses, included in these being the furnishing of an intoxicating drink little less atrocious than the mezcal from across the line. 
According to Mr. Lumholtz, the Papagos date their year from the commencement of the saguaro harvest, which occurs about the middle of our year. In many desert canyons, the so-called wild apricot, Prunus aerogyna, is plentiful and bears good crops of small sweet berries. Prime luxury of all, however, is amouche, a diagueno word, which is secured by baking the heart of the agave, as I have described in another chapter. But these natural dainties are coming to be little prized now that sweets of greater charm, because Americano, are offered in paper bags or lace-filled boxes at the store. On the reservation at Palm Springs, there are a number of magnificent fig trees, descendants of the old historic figs of San Gabriel Mission. One that I measured showed a circumference of over nine feet. These furnish an abundance of delicious fruit, the surplus of which the Indians are not slow at turning into money, finding a demand for it in Los Angeles, where it brings high prices, as it comes early in the market. Old Marcos is the proud owner also of a few fine date palms, real deglet nur aristocrats imported many years ago from Algeria, and planted here by the Department of Agriculture to test their adaptability to our climate. No wonder if the tunas from his great cactus hedge, full twelve feet high, are less prized than of old. The Indian who panted for cooling drinks when heated in the chase was not condemned to water alone. A handful of crushed beans of the mesquite or the berries of the sumac, rue sovata, or, when obtainable, those of the manzanita, arcostaphalos of the upper canyons, added to the water in the olla, gave it a refreshing flavor. For society occasions, a pink tea effect could be obtained by serving a decoction of ocotillo flowers. The vogue for Indian baskets that has arisen in late years, quite justified by their beauty of shape and design and their admirable workmanship, will help to keep alive for a time this ancient and honorable craft. Many of the older women are wonderfully adept, but it is rare to find a young one who has learned the art. And there is, besides, a tendency toward discarding the old traditional designs in favor of wallpaper patterns or crude attempts at realism. The woman whose introduction to the ocean I described above is one of the best basket makers I know, and I was pleased lately to find her giving her little niece, eight or ten years old, a first lesson in basketry. In even a small basket of fine weave there may be ten thousand or more stitches so it was not surprising that little Conchita was not enthusiastic. It was remarkable to meet recently an Indian woman of certainly over 80 years who had taught herself the craft in the last few years and whose baskets are marvels in design, color, and texture. Pottery making is now seldom practiced among these desert Indians. With the necessity for handmade utensils, the art has almost ceased. I found pottery still being made recently at San Ysidro, a mountain village of the Cahuillas, and at Rincon, a Luiseño rancheria. The shapes were good, but the workmanship clumsy or careless. In graceful outline and delicate construction, the older specimens one finds are admirable. The old ollas were sometimes decorated, though seldom elaborately. In view of the fragility of the vessels, it is not to be expected that great pains should have been spent over ornament. 
the ground about the sites of old villages is littered with an astonishing amount of pottery debris and the traveller reflects with awe upon the centuries of spanking to which these countless tokens of youthful misadventure solemnly bear witness of medicines that were resorted to by the indians in olden days there were too many to be more than briefly touched upon here some have already been noticed to name a few others that were most in vogue the gum of the incense bush and celia farinosa was heated and applied for pain in the chest whence the plant was also known as yerba de vaso the twigs of the chamiso of the desert mountains adenostoma sparsifolia yerba del pasmo furnished an emetic a famous remedy almost a cure-all was the yerba santa eriodiction the wild buckwheat eriogonum fasciculatum yielded an eyewash and alleviated pain in head or stomach and an infusion of the leaves of the sumac rus ovata gave relief in case of colds another herb of renown was the yerba mansa anamopsis californica found in damp places and thought excellent in sundry complaints the herbal remedies were supplemented by the curative virtues of the thermal springs and by the very effective temescal or sweat house prototype of our turkish bath cord for fish lines snares slings and nets was procured from several plants the agave and yucca were the principal sources but a superior fiber was taken from one of the milkweeds asclepius areocarpa brushes came from the ever useful agave glue was at hand on the mesquite or was ingeniously prepared from other plants a sort of coffee was made from the roasted nuts of the simensia paints of various colors were taken from the earth and splendid dyes were obtained from sundry herbs in short there were few if any needs of a natural life in a mild climate that these people whom the early whites in conscious superiority of whiskey and six-shooter named diggers in contempt had not found the means of supplying many more pages could be filled with the list of their discoveries and appliances for those i have named are but examples drawn at random from an astonishing number End of chapter five